When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 101. As usual, I'm your host, Rebecca Larson, and boy, do we have another exciting episode for you today. First up, I interview the wonderful Dr. Kirsten Clayton Yardley about the Howard family, but especially the second Duke of Norfolk. And then podcast team member Steph joins us for Ask the Expert and a Brief History. You won't want to miss out on the listener-supplied questions that she asked me about the Seymours. And then she goes on to give us a look at a man who is rarely spoken about, Sir William Sherrington. It's going to be a lot of fun, so stick around. But real quick, I'd like to take a minute to tell you about my patrons and my November patron gift. I've decided, and I hope I don't regret this, that all patrons who are existing or who sign up in November will receive the first three chapters of my untitled historical fiction book about Thomas Seymour's life. Very few people have seen this book, but I'm ready to share some of it with you. Both new patrons and existing patrons will receive the gift. And with that, a very warm welcome to my newest supporters and patrons, Jennifer C., Laura K., Robert B., and Deanne W. A full list of patrons can be found at TutorsDynastyPodcast.com. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so at Patreon. That's Patreon.com slash TutorsDynasty. Thank you so much for your support. All right, let's do this. Kirsten, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. So you are, are new to this podcast. This is my first introduction to you. So I'm really excited to introduce the listeners to you as well. So can you just start out and let everybody know what piqued your interest in history? Gosh, that's actually quite a difficult question um, because I've had an interest in history for a very long time, uh, quite cliched. I think it's probably because I grew up in Leeds in West Yorkshire, um, which is up towards the north of England. And it's kind of an area of the country where you have a lot of ruined abbeys, a lot of castles. You can get easily over towards York for day trips. And my parents had an interest in archaeology and history. So we used to do lots of day trips kind of over to historical sites uh, from quite a young age and then I got secondary school which is uh, age 11 12 and I got introduced to the idea that how we interpret history changes over time and that really interested me and it kind of went from there I had some great teachers at school and uh, just kind of rolled with it <laughs> And you've re recently published a book um, about Thomas Howard, the second Duke of Norfolk, called The Man Behind the Tudors. What piqued your interest or what brought you to the Howard family to write this book? So I came to the Howard family basically when I was applying for PhDs, and I was originally looking at uh, material culture and gentry networks. But then I found an advert for a funded uh, studentship for a PhD, which was taking a sort of interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach to studying the tombs of the Howard family, which are in the church uh, next to the castle in Framlingham. Um, so I applied for that and uh, got that studentship. And uh, I was kind of doing the historical perspective on the family and where they fitted in the context of noble commemoration, tombs, funerals, identity. And um, yeah, that I spent the next three or four years studying them. Oh, fascinating. You know, I admittedly really know very little about the second Duke. So what is something that maybe you could tell someone like myself that would make us interested in learning more about him? 
Well, I can tell you that what got me interested in him particularly uh, was how long he lives. Like the first time I sat down and worked out that he is born about 1444, which is before the Wars of the Roses even get started. And he dies in 1524, which is a good decade into Henry VIII's reign. And you suddenly realise just how much history he lived through and how many events that he must have seen and people that kind of come and go and he outlives them. And because of his family, you know, he's in a position to be able to see all these things kind of quite close up. Um, So I thought that was quite interesting. (laughs) So you mentioned he lived a long time and he saw a lot happen. What are some of the changes that maybe he saw at court or in England at the time that you would say might be the most significant or notable changes he experienced? So I think probably probably one of the most notable changes would have to be the Wars of the Roses ending and the Tudors coming to power. Um, Because up until that point, a lot of his kind of teenage into young adult life is lived against the backdrop of this conflict going on between the Yorkists and the Lancastrians and you know it's quite unstable sort of politically within England and so to then reach that point where you know we don't get stability straight away but to have Henry Tudor take over and kind of he deals with the last vestiges of rebellion and kind of gets to settle down and start trying to get the country back under control again uh, I think it's probably the biggest change he lived through. Um, obviously, he doesn't quite make it to the Reformation. <laughs> yeah. If he would have, he would have been quite old. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about his career and his loyalty to Edward IV. Because a little preliminary reading that I did, the thing that really stuck out to me most was that he went into sanctuary for a while, which is something we actually hear a lot about during the Wars of the Roses, Why did he claim sanctuary and how long was he there? So he claimed sanctuary um, around about March 1471, which is when they first hear that Edward IV, who's in exile at that time, is about to uh, try and invade England and uh, take the throne back again. And so they send out instructions that they want to arrest his main supporters who are still sort of going about their business in England. And one of the people who they do arrest is the Duke of Norfolk, who is one of um, Edward IV's leading supporters. He's also a relative of the Howard family, and they are leading members of his household. So basically they flee before there's any chance that they could also be arrested. And so uh, Thomas and his father, John, go into sanctuary in St. John's Abbey, Colchester. And they're probably not actually in there for very long. By April, we know that they're putting out proclamations in support of Edward IV. Uh, So it's, you know, not a particularly long stay, but obviously they're just trying to get to a place where they can't be seized by Henry VI's supporters. Do we have any idea how he felt after um, Edward IV died and Richard III took the throne. Do we have any idea? So we don't have a huge amount of information. Um, We have a lot of detail about his life comes from an epitaph. Uh, We're not 100% sure whether he wrote it or his family wrote it. And um, they're understandably a little bit sketchy about what they're up to and what they're thinking during Richard III's reign because obviously they then go on to be supporting the Tudors it's kind of not diplomatic to admit to what you're up to in Richard III's reign if you're supporting him he I mean he has a he has a really good relationship with Edward IV to start with um but it feels like it maybe breaks down a little bit towards the end of Edward IV's reign, uh, specifically when Edward IV kind of juggles things so that an inheritance that would have been divided between the Howards and the Barclay family 
ends up going instead to Edward IV's younger son, uh, Richard. And so there's possibly a slight suspicion that they're not entirely happy with Edward IV for doing that after they've supported him for so long. I'm, I'm curious. I want to go back because you had mentioned something that I'd never heard before, and I'm hoping you can elaborate a little bit. Was it common for people to write their own epitaph? It's actually quite hard to identify who's writing some of these things. Uh, they don't they don't survive in huge numbers, and the epitaph that Thomas Howard has is uh, it's not really something we have a concept anymore. It was actually written up on a board that would have been displayed in the church next to his tomb, so it's kind of an information board. <laughs> like you would get at a historical site now. And this is actually something that quite a lot of churches would have had in the past, kind of histories of their origins and notable people associated with them. But obviously a lot of them have been lost over time. And in this case, we're lucky enough someone copied it down before it got destroyed. And you could sort of tell that it has a definite PR gloss to it. Um <laughs> That makes you think that, you know, if he wasn't involved in writing it, someone close to him probably was. Um, In his case, we know that he designed his own tomb. Uh, It wasn't actually the design of tomb that was built, but sort of eight years before his death, he got very sick and he came up with a design for his own tomb. So he was interested in how he was remembered. And with other noblemen, you see some of them have epitaphs more in the form of poems. And again, they're probably not writing them themselves, but they are paying the person who is writing them. Yeah, so it rem- kind of it- <laughs> yeah. It it reminds me. I I like to research the Seymour family, and it reminds me of Sir John Seymour's um, at the Great Bedouin Church, and his was actually placed there by his grandson, the Earl of Hartford, who probably didn't even know him. And they have based his date of death off of what his grandson had put on this. Since then, we've had historians who have come back. Um, I think it was Graham Bath who came out and said, no, I think that date is wrong, that he, he got it wrong all along. And this is what everybody's been going off of. So I'm fascinated by them. They are really interesting. And it's just a pity that more of them are sort of around either because people didn't have them commissioned or because they've they've just been lost to us. I feel like I want to create one for myself for one day. <laughs> what would I write? <laughs> I mean, you can say anything. I it's it's nothing to do with the Howards. One of my favorites is actually one of the Earls of Derbyshire who has it's it's a poem in his case, but it's kind of the lady protests too much. It kind of goes on and on about how he definitely wasn't a traitor he never had traitorous thoughts and he was never remotely kind of catholic leaning um (laughs) and you sort of read it and you're like this just sounds like you're trying a bit too hard to kind of pr yourself after your death that is too funny Well, let's get back to the the subject at hand here. And we know that um, Thomas was a Yorkist under Edward IV and and Richard III. Why do you think Thomas turned down the opportunity to rebel against Henry VII during the Lambert-Simnel scandal? I mean, I think I'm going to go pragmatism here. Um, I mean, there's also an element we don't we don't a hundred percent know that he had the opportunity. It it is one of these things that he writes himself in his epitaph. He's possibly kind of over exaggerating a bit to prove just how loyal he was. Um, but if we assume that it did happen, I think it was just too great a risk for him. You know, at the time, uh, John de la Pole, uh, the Earl of Lincoln, and Viscount Lovell are the two kind of main Yorkists who go over and support uh, Lambert Simnel, but they're free at this moment. Kind of, they can leave the country. It's not without their difficulties, but that option's available to them. Thomas is already in the Tower of London. His family haven't gone into exile. They're still at home. They're relying on the Earl of Oxford, who is a major Lancastrian supporter, 
to kind of support them and be nice to them um, so that they're not kind of suffering at the hands of their neighbours uh, while he's in the tower. And I just think even if they could arrange to break him out of the tower, it just seems very fraught with risk for sort of for him personally and his life and for retaliation against his family if he's caught. And he just feels like the sort of person over his career who he knows when to recognise a lost cause, I think, and when it's in his interests to, you know, go with what maybe not be may not be his first choice, but is going to be the best choice. Is it just me or does that seem like a pattern for the Howard family? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I would agree with that. Pragmatism and ambition um, and the Howard family, uh, they, they go together really well. So then we know that he continued his loyalty to the Tudor monarchs and he went on to fight against Scotland, Battle of Flodden, under Henry VIII. Was there ever any hint of treason from him at all? Honestly, I haven't come across any. That's not to say that he completely saw eye to eye with Henry VII and Henry VIII. He didn't. Particularly Henry VIII, there are recorded examples of him having arguments with the king. And we definitely know that he wasn't always in favour. He gets sidelined under Henry VIII, but never to the extent that he's being suspected of treason. Like there's really nothing. Occasionally you get outside observers sort of making passing comments about, you know, the Howards have a vague claim to the throne, but it's never anything that he seems to have acted on or taken seriously. Um he just seems pretty straightforward, loyal. Let's you know, I wanna talk about his military career just a little bit, or maybe the Howard family in general, because they always seem to be at the forefront of these campaigns. Is there anything that sticks out for you as far as um, successful things that they have done military-wise or how they got to those positions? So, hmm. (laughs) and maybe that's a horrible question and I might not be phrasing it the way that I want to, but I really want to talk about their military careers because he was, I mean, he was successful. Yeah. He was. And I mean, it kind of kicks off with his father, John Howard, who, you know, he's in the service of the Dukes of Norfolk. It's during the Wars of the Roses. He he kind of starts off, I guess, a bit more sort of enforcer than military. And he has an interest in shipping and kind of the overlap at this point between sort of shipping and more what would become naval interests. You know, at this point, there's not there's not a navy, so kind of shipping translates to a sort of maritime naval interest. Um, and obviously, with the Wars of the Roses going on, you know, noblemen are being expected to uh, provide men, and you know, it doesn't look like the Howards are kind of at the forefront, sort of there at every single battle, or at least not on record as being there at every battle, but. You know, they're being required to raise men, they're going, they're fighting, they're getting injured. And then obviously as kind of as they rise up to the point where John Howard becomes Duke of Norfolk, then increasingly, you know, it's on them more and more to be the one providing men to support the cause of whichever king is in charge, which, you know, by the time you get to the Battle of Bosworth, you know, they are kind of the main supporter of Richard III um, when it gets to the Battle of Bosworth. John Howard is at the front, sort of on the front line. He's leading Richard's vanguard in the battle. Thomas Howard is there with him, probably sort of second in command to his father. And they are taking the brunt of the fighting in that battle against the Earl of Oxford. So that's I guess that's kind of the big military engagement early on in his sort of earlier in his career where his family's stepping up kind of into the more command, sort of large-scale command position. Obviously, that one doesn't go so well for them. And then Thomas Howard goes up to Yorkshire and is based kind of in that area where you're trying to keep order in the north and you've got threats coming in from Scotland. Is You know, it's kind of this ever-present risk 
that the Scottish might decide to invade or do some raids over the border. So he's having to take an interest in kind of military defence and in um, he does have to raise men occasionally. And it's just all adding up sort of experience wise over his very long life. Um, And it kind of culminates at the Battle of Flodden, I guess which is very much his his command, although nominally uh, Catherine of Aragon is in charge in England at that time. Obviously, she can't go out to the battlefield herself. Right. Do we have any idea um, what his reaction was to Catherine of Aragon wanting to send James IV's body to Henry VIII? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think it was actually a record of um, his reaction. I, I don't. I probably wouldn't have objected. I mean, <laughs> it's poor, poor James the Fourth. I mean, he does not get treated with much respect. His body after that battle. Oh, let's. Let, I think my last question is going to be, um, especially in the Tudor period, we think a lot about the Howard family scheming and always trying to find ways of getting more power. Did this begin, but before? The third duke? I think it probably did. Um, I mean, I've always been a little bit wary about scheming because I think like today it's kind of become very, it's got certain connotations and particularly with the Howards, you get into Anne Boleyn and kind of ways that people have thought about her. So I tend to sort of go back and think that kind of the Howards, they're they're very ambitious. They're very self-interested they have a very definite idea of what they think their position in society ought to be and like what roles they should be fulfilling and they're very pragmatic i think you see that through a lot of them and and they are ruthless they are pretty ruthless about how they go about it um they're not the only ones there's other Tudor noblemen who show similar traits and noble women but obviously they are particularly notorious and I I think it starts I mean I think it starts possibly even earlier under uh, John Howard uh, Thomas's father you can see signs that you know he gets his family from working his way up from being kind of a junior member of a small regional family who happens to have a well-connected cousin and he builds himself quite a long way up even before um the Mowbray family die and their estates sort of become up for grabs. And Thomas, he, I think, (laughs) if we go for scheming, he doesn't come across quite as as scheming as some of his descendants. Um, And I think from what we know of him, he doesn't come across quite as badly as the third duke, but he is definitely pragmatic and he is definitely ambitious and yeah (laughs) i i think it is there already even before you get to the third duke and his children (laughs) you're right you know all those families back then were so ambitious and you know people always talk about the seymour family scheming and you know trying to get more power it was kind of the name of the game back then i mean it's the only way you can get ahead and i've always thought you know like the gamble is big like I used to think, sort of think, if you go through families, um, it's kind of fun thought game to do as slight Tudor geek. Is what family would like would you want to be? Because some of them kind of pootle along and they don't go much in for the sort of high level scheming and ambition, and they do okay. Like they last, they do fine, but they never quite reach the height of some of you know the Howards the Seymours sort of earlier the Nevilles and it kind of seems like you've got to you've got to go it all in on the sort of ambition and ruthlessness and if it works it works really well I mean you run the risk of execution right you lose your head over it (laughs) and it's like which would you choose to do (laughs) yeah exactly so what is it, um, what can you tell the listeners, uh, what can they expect from your book, The Man Behind the Tutors? Well, I hope, I hope that what they can expect is to kind of learn a bit more about this member of the Howard family who 
kind of gets overshadowed a bit by his own family amongst others and I think learn a little bit more about where where they came from where the big names that we know where the third dukes of norfolk anne boleyn's elizabeth the first kind of sort of where where their starting point point came from you know he's the one who gets them into the position where they are able i guess to aim even higher than he has where they're able to aim for marrying the king where they can be queen of england um because you know it's really John Howard first of all but then also Thomas Howard sort of the choices that he makes through his life are what puts them in this place where they are really wealthy they are really well married off in terms of who they're connected to uh they have the lands they have the castles they have the power um and it doesn't all work out for them but I hope it kind of explains a little bit more sort of what's going on kind of behind that before you get into the more notorious members of the Howard and more notorious members of the Tudors as well, who um, he was related to, most of them. So I have your book. I haven't been able to start reading it yet, so I'm really looking forward to getting into it and to learning more about what happened before the Tudors. That's exciting to me. I hope you enjoy it. (laughs) I'm sure I will. Can you first quickly tell everybody where they can find your book? Um, so it's published by Pen and Sword, so they have it available on their website. Uh, it's also on Amazon and other online booksellers of choice. And I think at the moment it's hardback and Kindle editions currently. Thank you so much. Okay, and now we're going to go into the new closing segment that I call If I Made You Choose. So what I'm going to do for you here is I'm going to give you the option of two people to choose between. Okay. The first one is Richard III or Henry VII? Richard III. (laughs) All right. The next one is Catherine of Aragon or Anne Boleyn? Catherine of Aragon. Now I'm going to make you choose between two Howard descendants. Now, Catherine Howard or Anne Boleyn? I'm going to say Anne Boleyn. Well, here's, here's another fun one. Elizabeth Stafford or Bess Holland? Bess Holland. And the last one, everybody who's been on the show this season gets this question. Because I'm researching Thomas Seymour, of course, the Seymour brothers, the big rivalry. So I want you to choose Edward Seymour or Thomas Seymour. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Edward Seymour. Now, that was another tough one. <laughs> You've got a lot of questions here. Um, I'm going with Edward, Edward Seymour because I actually studied him quite a bit while I was doing my um, undergraduate degree. I, I did a bit on uh, Edward the Sixth, and Mary Tudor was one of my papers. And he's another one like, I, I think he does a lot of interesting stuff. I think some of the things that he's doing before he's... Um, you know while he's lord protector um and kind of all that sort of the social stuff that's going on and kind of social and economic policies (laughs) sorry this is gonna be really tedious but this is what (laughs) this was what i studied (laughs) and i just thought he was kind of interesting and in some ways i uh, i'm not sure he deserved to be overthrown and i think it's quite interesting like again a bit like richard the third that kind of sort of ordinary people popularity and policies versus kind of the rest of the nobility um Thomas Seymour always struck me as the slightly more dashing and slightly more reckless one of the family um I'm not sure if you'd agree having studied them so you mean Thomas was the fun one (laughs) (laughs) well Thomas may have been the slightly more scandalous one (laughs) And so on the one hand, like, I mean, there's a lot of interest in the scandal and stuff. And so I'm possibly, you know, <laughs> going with the, you know, the, the boring social and economic policies one. Um, but again, I feel, yeah, I feel, I feel a bit of, you know, empathy as well for Edward kind of as being the sort of Lord Protector political history one versus dashing scandalous Thomas, How- Thomas Seymour. <laughs> well, thank you. 
So if you're listening and you want to learn more about Thomas Howard, the second Duke of Norfolk, please check out Kirsten's book, The Man Behind the Tudors, Thomas Howard, second Duke of Norfolk. Kirsten, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you again. It's been really fun. Really good fun. And now, Ask the Expert. Welcome to Ask the Expert. I'm podcast team member Steph Storr, and I'll be hosting today because our expert is our very own Rebecca Larson, host of the show. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome. Hello. How does it feel to be on that end of the interview today? It's a little bit awkward because I don't have control, but... It's totally awkward for me too, so that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we've asked our friends on social media if they had any questions for you. And we've gotten so many questions. First question about the Seymours is, where did the Seymours come from? Were they always aristocratic or did they come up the ranks as time progressed? So that is a great question because the Seymours, obviously, we know them from the 16th century. But maybe what a lot of people don't understand about them is that they were country gentry. So then the, the question is, what's country gentry, right? Now, According to the customs of um, English society, country gentry, they were a group of individuals. They didn't have to work for a living. They just owned all of this land and then could have other people work it for them. So technically speaking, they were untitled aristocrats. So they were not part of the peerage. So that might be why we see that, you know, Sir John Seymour, the father of Queen Jane, um, spent a lot of time at court, just like his sons did, because they had the liberty to do that, because they weren't having to be back working their lands and, you know, doing all the grunt work, so to speak, that everybody else had to do for them. As far as where did they come from? That's always such a difficult question to answer, because the origins of the Seymour family They can be traced back, if you believe in legend, to the time of William the Conqueror's invasion of England. But we need to look at something other than these tales that have been told over the centuries. And we really need to focus on what evidence remains. We need to look at documents. And the first documented Seymour, or at that time they were called St. Mar, so Saint, S-T, and then M-A-U-R, Um, That's what they were called back then. They show up in the first half of the 13th century to some lands that were held in Monmouthshire. I always have a hard time pronouncing that one. But anyway, they were held there by one William St. Mar. That is the very first document where we see um, a Seymour family member is in the 13th century. So that's kind of where their family begins. And then they just made a lot of advantageous marriages. These guys always seem to have married up. Um, Sir John Seymour's ancestors, um, off the top of my head, now I'm forgetting if it was his grandfather or his great-grandfather, um, married the the daughter of the family, the Estuary family, who were wardens of Savernac Forest, which was a huge forest in England at the time. If you look at it at a map now, it is tiny. Um, but at the time, if I recall, it was like 20 miles long, 20 miles wide. It was huge. And now it's just a fraction of that. But to be the warden of that was a very prestigious title. And so because they married the daughter and she was the heiress at the time, then that just became something that was attached to the Seymour family. And so Sir John Seymour also became the warden of Savernac. Um, But, you know, as we've seen, the Seymour family knew how to climb. They married well and um, they became more powerful because of it. Awesome. That's actually a really nice segue into the next question from Gregory. We don't know where he's from. He never gave us our location, but thanks, Gregory. Um, So as you mentioned, the Seymours kept marrying up. And they achieved a pretty great position for themselves. So he would like to know, how did the Seymours mess up so badly that most of them ended up dead? Was it greed, character flaws, overreaching, bad luck, or something else? (laughs) And now that I hear about all their reaching that they (laughs) did throughout the years, I'd love to hear the answer to this too. Gregory, you know, I see Gregory on social media all the time and he always has the best questions. Um, This this is so hard because I think they just reacted the same way many other families did. I mean, if we look at the Howard families, 
how many of them were executed? You know, we had at least Catherine Howard, who was executed. The Earl of Surrey was executed. His father, the Duke of Norfolk, was almost executed and was saved by Henry VIII's death. I just, I think that maybe when you reach a certain status, you know, they, the Seymours were country gentry. And so I think it's in human nature to want more and to sure. get bigger. And I feel like maybe they just, the Seymour family maybe just got caught more than other families or maybe they were addicted to it. Right. I mean, they, they made some horrible choices and it wasn't just Thomas, you know, Edward Seymour made some bad choices. And if we go on, you know, to his descendants, then we have the Earl of Hartford. Well, he married Catherine Gray in secret. So that was a bad choice. And it just keeps going on. Like I, that, did they feel entitled? I don't, I don't know. That's, it's a difficult question to answer, but it is fun to think about it. That's true. And of course you brought up Thomas Seymour. So <laughs> of let's, course I did. Let's, of course you did. Right. So let's take this in that direction. Instagram user, Angie cake. I'm sorry, Angie, if I ruin your name there. Um, but Angie would like to know, is there any truth to the rumors that Thomas Seymour behaved inappropriately towards Elizabeth? I can't wait to hear your answer. Did you hear me groan? (laughs) I I would groan as I was reading the question, actually. (laughs) Angie Cake. I would rather have cake than than answer this question. And I don't even like cake that much. The, The truth and the rumors. Okay. That Thomas behaved inappropriately with Elizabeth. The one thing that I always say and that we have to remember is we can't compare the 16th century to the 21st century. It was a completely different world to live in at that time. At the age of 12, girls could get married. At the age of 14, they could consummate the marriage. So at the time when these things, I'm going to say allegedly, at the time of these things allegedly Uh happening with Elizabeth, she was 13. So she was old enough to be married, almost old enough for um, consent, consummation. So she was a young, attractive princess, and Thomas Seymour is living with his wife, who is pregnant at the time. And we all know that um, in Tudor England, if the wife is pregnant, generally the husband will stray. Um, I think what I always come back to is where did we hear these stories? These stories all come from Elizabeth's governess, Cat Ashley. I We do know that Cat Ashley liked Thomas Seymour. She wasn't against him by any means. Um, we know that from testimonies, if we look at all the testimonies, we know from testimonies that Elizabeth obviously had a crush on Thomas Seymour because she would blush whenever his name was brought up in conversation. And we heard that from her cofferer, Thomas Perry. He mentions her blushing at the, at the mention of Thomas's name. Did he go into her bedroom, you know, bare legged in a nightshirt? It's so hard to say. We have Kat Ashley telling us the story and not really anybody else. There is no other mention that I can recall at this very moment that talks about that other than somebody repeating what Kat Ashley had told them. Right. So what was the point? Why would she say these things happen? Why would she say Thomas smacked Elizabeth on the backside? Why would she say he tried to climb into bed and kiss her? You know, why would she say that Elizabeth, you know, would get up early and get dressed and, you know, read her Bible or her books so she'd be ready when he would come into the room? I don't know. And if it is true, I feel like there's a reasonable explanation for it, but I don't know it. And that's probably the most difficult part because there are so many things that would go into somebody behaving that way. There's just so many questions. And I wish we had statements from somebody else who lived during that time. That's their own independent statements about his uh, his inappropriate behavior with Elizabeth. If Catherine Parr could write a letter from beyond, I would love to know her side of that story. Of course, of course. And isn't it funny then how one person's story yeah. has become canon at this point about right. what people think about Thomas Seymour. Yeah. And the, and the big one, obviously that I always like to mention is the, um, how Elizabeth was spotted 
in the gallery with her arms around a man in an embrace. And, you know, we have the one story um, that says, oh, Catherine Parr came upon Elizabeth and Thomas in the gallery in an embrace. And then we have another story that says, no, it was Thomas who came upon Elizabeth with a man in the gallery. Again, which one is it? We don't know. Well, thank you for not really clearing it up, but (laughs) (laughs) that's such a hard one. It It is. is. It is. And it's the one that everyone wants to know. Right. Unfortunately, it just, it can't be answered. I keep hoping in my research because, you know, I would say every couple months I find something that I hadn't discovered before. And so I really hope that I come across some piece of evidence that, you know, nobody has looked at or has looked at it with a different eye, maybe. I think the most important thing to think about is what you mentioned at the beginning of that answer is that it was not 2020 at that time. Exactly. Things just didn't go the way they go now. No. And and I feel like, especially on social media, we see a lot of people calling him a molester or a child abuser or whatever that may be. And that is so unfair to him because we don't know that. People love a villain. Yes. And I want to stop him from being the villain. All right. Well, can I ask you one more question that sounds like he's a villain and then we'll move on? (laughs) Okay, I'm ready. Instagram user Paris Morgan wants to know if Thomas Seymour really did strive for the throne. I know, I know why Paris is thinking that, and it probably has something to do with the killing of the king's dog. And um, I was hoping you'd bring up the dog. <laughs> I didn't want to. I really did it. Uh, that's probably where people get that idea was that he wanted to kill the king. And he wanted to marry Elizabeth and he wanted to kill Mary to make way for Elizabeth. And then Elizabeth would be queen and Thomas would be king consorts. There's there's no fact to it, really. I mean, I've said this. um, I said it at TudorCon that I really don't believe that the events at Hampton Court on the 16th of January, 1549, actually happened. I think it was a story that was fabricated by William Padgett, and he relayed that information to um, the, I think it was the Imperial Ambassador Vanderdelft, and Vanderdelft told people, and then um, rumor just kind of spread from there. There, I have not found any evidence that places Thomas at Hampton Court Palace that night. You would think that if he went there with a gun and shot the king's dog and they suspected him of also wanting to kill the king that he would have been charged with regicide but he wasn't he had 33 charges against him and not one of them was regicide so i honestly think he did not want the throne for himself but he would have liked more power i think what he wanted really was to put his nephew on higher on the throne maybe so to speak and give him the liberties to make his own ju- choices because the king, you know, kept going to his uncle Tom, you know, Uncle Somerset's, you know, hard on me. He doesn't give me money. And so he's making Somerset a bad guy and Tom's there going, okay, great. I wanted to get more power. I'll do whatever I can to make my nephew happy. And if I can get him to accept more power as king, that's going to benefit me in the long run. I he I honestly do not believe that he wanted the throne for himself. Not, not, not at all. Not whatsoever. I have to say you're very convincing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) My next question is actually from me because I am very interested in Mary Seymour, Thomas Seymour's daughter with um, Catherine Parr. Yeah. And we actually got a similar question from Annie from Essex um, in the United Kingdom. So if we kind of put our questions together, we were wondering what happened to Mary. And we know that this is one of those mysteries that there's just not enough evidence to be able to say confidently what the answer is. Mm -hmm. But since you're doing so much research on Thomas, has anything that you've read thus far give you any sort of reason to have your own even hypotheses on what might have happened to their baby? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, but before I get to that, let's just go back a little bit for those who maybe aren't familiar with Mary Seymour. Um, she was born on August 30th, 1548 to Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour. And on September 5th, I believe it was, Catherine Parr died. And so then little Mary Seymour's with her father at Sudley Castle. Well, we're into September. All of a sudden in January, Thomas Seymour is arrested. So now Mary is alone. And I believe what happened was um, Thomas didn't think he was going to be in the tower very long. I truly believe that. He didn't seem to understand how he was in so much trouble. And so his brother, Somerset, and his wife, Anne, took Mary Seymour into their custody at Sion Abbey, which they were turning into a huge palace. They took her into their custody. And then um, when Thomas was given his sentence, which I think was on the 17th of March, that's when we see um, that he made a request to have his daughter um, stay under the guardianship of the Dowager Duchess of Suffolk. So Catherine Willoughby, who I think at that time was Catherine Bertie. So here we go. Poor little Mary. Her mom dies about six months later, roughly. Her dad's in prison, and then he's executed a few months later, and she's getting tossed around. You know, she's first tossed to her aunt and uncle, and then she's moved over to the Dowager Duchess of Suffolk. And the Dowager Duchess seems like part of her was a little bit annoyed that she had to deal with this daughter of a queen. And it wasn't cheap to have her in her custody. And it was passed. Oh, I need to remember how this was now. So so while Mary was with the Dowager Duchess of Suffolk, she is writing William Cecil letters. And at the time, he was like a secretary to Somerset. So he was, you know, pretty high up there. Somerset, of course, was Lord Protector as a secretary. He was like Cromwell was for Henry VIII. So she's writing letters to Cecil, basically telling him, hey, you know, when I took custody of Lady Mary, she was promised to have this much money coming in, and I haven't seen any of it, and she's, you know, she's expensive to keep a household for. And she keeps going back and forth and back and forth, and, you know, poor lady and poor Mary, it was a trying time, I think, for everybody. And so eventually on, it was like the 22nd of January, 1550. So if we think about that, that's a year after Thomas was arrested. He's been dead already for a while. There was an application that was made in the House of Commons, and it was for the restoration of Lady Mary Seymour. Now, what that meant was that she was eligible by the act to receive any remaining property that hadn't already been returned to the crown. She was able to receive any remaining property that she had inherited from her father because Thomas Seymour inherited everything from Catherine Parr when she died. So he was pretty wealthy at that time, which in return, Mary should have been. But unfortunately, it had been, like I said, almost a year since her father's execution. And so a lot of the land that she should have inherited or received the funds from had already been sold or it had reverted to the crown again. So here's Mary. It's the 22nd of January, 1550. It's just put out there that she's going to get some money. Finally, we don't know exactly how much, but we know that she's going to get some money. Sudley Castle, she can't go back there because that's her um, uncle, William Parr, the Marquess of Northampton. He's living there now and he wants nothing to do with her. Basically, he can't afford her. So she can't go there. She's staying with the Duchess of Suffolk. And after that, it goes dry. So she's awarded this restoration and it would have to, excuse me, and it would have to be renewed. We don't see any records of it being renewed. So that's what leads everybody to believe that she died. So she lived to be about two years old and then she died. We don't know when, we don't know of what she died from. We don't know where she's buried It's all just up for debate. So do you think that the fact that we don't know where she's buried and we don't know anything about her death uh, is on purpose? 
No, I think she was just lost to time. She was a child. Neither of her parents were living. Her family clearly didn't seem to care about her. Um, and I think she just got lost. I am dying to ask you this one question from James from England. Um, he used some more colorful language than I'm going to use right now. But I think that everybody listening can just come up, come up with their own version of what they think he said. Oh, I'm intrigued. Uh, my version is going to go like this. Just what in the golly gee is the birth order for all of these Seymours? Different sources have different orders. <laughs> golly gee. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Fill it in. You can change whatever you want there, but James really, really fervently wants to know the birth order of the Seymours. <laughs> he is upset, and I get it. James, I feel your pain because... <laughs> This is this is it. It doesn't matter what book you look at. Every single one is different. So let's just look at what we do know. Okay. If we go back to um, the, not the headstone, the tablet that is above the tomb of Sir John Seymour at Great Bedwin Church. If we look at that tablet, it really throws everything off because there were 10 children the tablet says the order was John, Edward, Henry, Thomas, John, another John, Anthony, Jane, Elizabeth, Marjorie, Dorothy. Okay. Well, I looked at that and I went, something isn't right about this. Um, but we don't know for certain because the problem with this tablet is, is it was created by the Earl of Hartford, who was Somerset's son and who would have been the grandson of Sir John Seymour. Hartford would not have been very old if born at all. I don't remember what year he was born, but it was, he probably didn't know his grandfather very well. On the tablet, it says that Sir John Seymour died in 1536, December 1536. And there is a historian who's been working out at Wolf Hall. He does a lot of research in Wiltshire. His name is Graham Bath. Um, Graham and a gentleman by the name of Ian, I don't remember his last name right now, looked into this a little bit further. And from their research, they make some really good points about why that date of death is wrong for Sir John Seymour, um, that it just doesn't match the timeline where they were or gifts that were given and things like that. But I don't need to go into that right now. So just so we know, the tablet is incorrect. So the order of, of the kids on the tablet is wrong. Surprise, surprise. What I can tell you is I know for sure that the eldest son was John. I can tell you next came Edward. And then we had Henry, Thomas, Jane, Elizabeth, and Dorothy. Of those, everyone survived except John. And that's about all we can say for certain. I hope that James is satisfied with that answer. He's probably not. And James, I'm sorry. That's the I, best I can do for you. I don't want to hear what he comes up with next if he doesn't like that answer. So It's so hard because they didn't have birth records and they were just country gentry. It's not like they were royals. So why keep track of it? And a lot of the stuff like Jane Seymour, we try and figure out what year she was born by the number of ladies in her funeral procession. So how do you know? So speaking of Jane, actually, Charlie, uh, again, did not give us his location. So I'm sorry, Charlie. He's just, just floating in space. He's just floating out there in the ether. But Charlie would like to know, what do you think about Allison Weir's theory that Jane didn't actually die of puerperal fever, but rather a combination of dehydration and embolism? That's so interesting because I could have sworn that Allison's theory was that she died from food poisoning. Maybe I'm mistaken. I know that theory is out there as well. I think she died of puerperal fever. Um, and one of the things I wrote an article about her once talking or about Catherine Parr, actually talking about puerperal fever and how it works. And the thing is, if we look at, you know, let's say I pull up, I don't know, WebMD or whatever it's going to be, um, it's going to say that a woman can start showing symptoms of it in the first 10 days after having a baby. So it's totally possible 
She had um, Prince Edward on the 12th of October. 12 days later, she was dead. So it fits in the timeline. I don't know why we need to come up with new theories about how she died. I don't think there was any question until Allison started mentioning it. I could be wrong, but it was purple fever. It really seems like that's what it was. I don't, I don't think we need to look at any other explanations for it. Now, if Jane had lived, uh, Angela would like to know how soon you think it would have taken for Henry to turn on her even though she was the mother of his son? Mm. See, questions like that are always hard to answer because we can't know. We can't predict what could have happened. All we can do is just look at what actually happened. Um, But if I'm going to take a shot at this, I would just say that she gave Henry what he wanted, a son. Right. As long (laughs) my cat is going crazy in here. (laughs) Okay. She gave him a son. That is all he ever wanted. So why would he get rid of her? Right. If she gave him a living son. It it I don't I don't think he would have tired of her. And if he did, he would have just gotten a mistress. Even I but at that point he was already, you know, having issues. Obviously, he was getting up there in age. So I don't yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, I I actually was thinking the same thing as you were talking. I was thinking that turning on her doesn't necessarily mean having her beheaded. Right. Right. I mean, turning on her could just mean I'm bored with you and I'm going to take a mistress. Right. Or I'm going to send you to a nunnery or. Yeah. Well, we have one last question and it is from Valerie on Facebook. And she wanted to know if you think or know for sure if Edward VI signed Thomas Seymour's death warrant, because of course we're ending this with a Thomas Seymour question. We have to bring it back full circle. You have to have another chance. It's only, it's only fitting. It is only fitting. (laughs) Well, Valerie, thank you for your question. Um, Did he sign his uncle's death warrant? I don't believe he did. And I don't think he had to actually, I think all he had to do was really give consent So the council had decided um, the Lord Protector had signed off on it. And really, all they needed was the king's consent to do so. And the king gave it. Sadly, it baffles me, but I feel like maybe he was coerced or maybe he felt like there was a threat to his safety because those in the council were warning him that that's what was happening. Whether or not that was true, you know, we just we we know that Thomas said he wanted to do a lot of things, but never did them. So you can't really charge somebody with treason if they didn't perform the act. You know, he said he wanted to do this and he wanted to do that. Well, in the long run, he never did. So I just I find it interesting. I think that the council had some influence over Edward, and that is why he decided to give his consent to have his favorite uncle executed well thank you how did it feel to be on that side of the interview um it's awkward but it's nice to be able to talk about what i know and now a brief history Welcome to this installment of A Brief History. Normally, this is the part where I tell you all about one character from Tudor history. But today, to help me out since I started working again, I have team member Steph here to hook us up. And today, Steph is telling us all about Sir William Sherrington. When considering the events of 1549 in England, the story of Thomas Seymour and his suspected plans to kidnap the boy King Edward VI and take power for himself are generally at the forefront of the drama. Regardless of your opinions of Seymour and his motives, his downfall was historic and not solely of his own doing. William Sherrington was born in approximately 1495 to Thomas Sherrington, a wealthy gentleman in Norfolk, and his wife Catherine, daughter of William Pyerton. There is little information about his first 30 or so years of life until 1538, when he was established as part of the entourage of Sir Francis Bryan, Sherrington was married three times, firstly to Ursula, the illegitimate daughter of influential courtier John Bowsher, who most likely engineered Sherrington's place at court. He became a groom of the robes to Henry VIII in 1540, 
and elevated to the Privy Chamber in 1541. Around this time, during the dissolution of the monasteries, a parish called Laycock was sold to Sherrington by the king. The infirmary and abbey were demolished, and Sherrington made the parish his home. He married his second wife, Eleanor Walsingham, the sister of Francis Walsingham, who became Elizabeth I's Secretary of State, somewhere around 1540, and was already married to his third wife, Grace Paget, by 1542. In an unusual family coincidence, Sherrington's brother married Grace's daughter, and the sister married Grace's son. In 1547, Sherrington was knighted at Edward VI's coronation, and by 1548 was incredibly wealthy and powerful. He continued to purchase monastic lands and own several ships, allowing him to engage in trade overseas. Many of his ships were trading from ports out of Bristol, where he also happened to be the treasurer and chief officer of Bristol Mint. He owned 14 manors in Wiltshire, plus others in Dorset, Gloucestershire, and Somerset, and continued to purchase more and more land right up until his death in 1553. The most noteworthy aspects of Sherrington's life, however, did not occur because of the lands he owned, but rather his position at the Mint and his involvement in a suspected uprising and capture of the boy king by Thomas Seymour. Upon the death of Henry VIII, Edward Seymour was made both Lord Protector of the Realm as well as the governor of the king's person to nine-year-old king Edward VI. As another of the king's uncles, Thomas Seymour wanted what he deemed rightfully his share of power and directorship. No Lord Protector had ever previously held both functions, and Thomas would not be satisfied with his brother's attempted bribes of raising his status to Lord High Admiral or payoffs with large sums of money. Neither were adequate as to what he felt he deserved. Seymour began suggesting to the young monarch to rule on his own, but to no avail. In August 1547, Lord Protector Somerset went on campaign in Scotland, leaving Thomas Seymour one of the custodians of the king's person. Stung that he had not been given full custody, this is where he seems to have started considering abducting the king. All the while, William Sherrington had been simultaneously behaving equally inappropriately by abusing his position at the Bristol Mint. He had been debasing coins for some time by replacing their precious metal content with base metals so that more money could be produced. These new coins even had his own initials stamped into them. Unfortunately, debasement and clipping, which is taking a small amount of metal off the edges of coins and melting it down to sell or form new coins, had been an issue under the reign of Henry VIII, and wasn't getting any better. In what seems to be a strategy to protect himself from being discovered, Sherrington became involved in Seymour's plans to initiate the uprising. In autumn of 1548, Seymour asked Sherrington how much money he would be required to pay for and ration 10,000 men for a month. He claimed that he had the lands and the supporters to gain control. So in indeed clearly abusing his position at the Mint, Sherrington agreed to counterfeit coins to help Seymour pay for enough men to start a rebellion and take control of the king. Unfortunately, by January of 1549, as chief officer of the Bristol Mint, William Sherrington was caught, the Mint was searched, and he was arrested on a charge of debasing and clipping coinage. The initial investigation of Sherrington actually had nothing to do with Seymour and focused solely on the illegal activities taking place at the Mint. Yet in order to confidently save his life and receive his pardon, he made a full confession to the council, admitting not only his guilt, but his alleged assistance in Seymour's plot. It was this confession that led to the immediate arrest of Seymour, sending him directly to the Tower of London. In his confession, Sherrington stated that Seymour's objective was to, quote, alter the state of the realm and that he was supposedly aware of money being given to the king's servants on behalf of Seymour. Although the king himself testified to having received some pocket money, Sherrington's statements were the only substantial validation, quote, of Seymour's greater conspiracy. Unlike Thomas Seymour, who was executed by Bill of Attainder rather than a trial, William Sherrington was ultimately pardoned and restored. In 1550, he was ordered to pay £12,867 for restorations and debt to the crown, and was eventually appointed Sheriff of Wiltshire. And just for reference, that would be about £5 million today, or $6.5 million. 
Sherrington eventually passed in 1553, and despite having been married three times, he died without issue. He was succeeded by his brother Henry. William Sherrington may not be as well known as many of his contemporaries, yet it was his actions that ultimately initiated one of the most significant downfalls of the Tudor era. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. If you'd love to support what I do, please go to patreon.com slash Tudor's Dynasty. Or even if you want to just leave me a five-star review, that would be great too. But please make sure that you subscribe either to my podcast on any podcast channel, or you can also find me on youtube.com slash Tudor's Dynasty. Want more information on the stuff discussed in this episode? Check out TudorsDynastyPodcast.com and click on show notes. Thanks for checking out the Tudors Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudors Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudors Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.